Good morning. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, this statement of Jesus in um, chapter 5 of, of Matthew that he came to fulfill the law. Um, so Matthew 5:17 says, uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. So I think it's helpful when we're looking at a statement like this to consider what the context is. Uh, so this is the uh, Sermon on the Mount, um, this, uh, this famous sermon that Jesus preached early on in his ministry. And uh, early on in the sermon, uh, he presented the Beatitudes, this, uh, uh, this uh, beautiful picture of these, uh, the values of this new kingdom that uh, Jesus is trying to uh, uh, trying to show to us. Um, these values are uh, beautiful and attractive and kind of foreign and upside down. And um, it's, it, it would have been something to be there to, uh, to experience that and to um, uh, see that for the first time. But I think what Jesus is doing here with this statement is answering a, a possible objection or uh, maybe just a concern um, that, uh, well, we already have a covenant, we already have a law, we have a relationship with God. What does this mean for that? Are you, like, just tossing that out? Um, and Jesus is saying, uh, no, I'm not tossing that out. Um, you know, that law is going to, it's going to last until uh, heaven and earth pass away. But in, in fact, I have come to fulfill that law. I wonder what they thought about that statement that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Did they think that the law needed fulfilled? Were they just uh, waiting and watching for Jesus or the Messiah to come and fulfill it? Um, well, I think there are a couple of uh, easier examples that we can see um, of the, the Messiah uh, coming to, uh, to fulfill the law. Um, for instance, uh, that he was born in Bethlehem. When the wise men came, uh, they came to, uh, came to Herod, um, asking where the Messiah is going to be born at. And, well, the scribes knew the answer. It's, it's going to be in Bethlehem. And they were right. Um, so that was, uh, that was clear to them at the time, as it is clear to us as well. You could also look at uh, Isaiah 53, which is a pretty, uh, pretty clearly messianic um, pa- uh, passage that uh, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to suffer for his people. He's going to take their punishment. There are a few other examples I think are a little bit harder. Um, for instance, in Matthew 2, when Jesus, um, when Joseph takes his family down to Egypt to flee from Herod, and then he comes back, uh, Matthew considers that a fulfillment of Hosea 11, uh, which says that out of Egypt I called my son. I say that's a little bit difficult to recognize because that passage originally was talking about Israel, and God was really kind of lamenting the, the honeymoon days of Israel, um, but now she has forsaken him. Um, so Messiah is not what would jump into my mind as a first century reader of that passage, but Matthew makes that connection. Another one that might be a little difficult would be uh, in Matthew 4.15, that when he came from Nazareth, um, Matthew saw that as a fulfillment of Isaiah 9.1, that out of Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness They've seen a great light. The Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, but he's going to come from Nazareth. Um, I say that's also a little bit difficult because in John chapter 7, some people had objections to Jesus because he came from Nazareth. They said, look, this guy's a Nazarene. He can't be the Messiah. The Messiah comes from Bethlehem. Um, So they either missed that or were maybe intentionally ignoring it. Hard to say. But uh, the clearest example of this has got to be in Exodus 21 too, 
Um, I'm sure that you all could just quote this from memory alongside me, but I'll read it to you um, just so you can, uh, just so we're all on the same page here. Um, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he will go out free without paying anything. So you all were thinking of that, right? When I said Jesus came to fulfill the law? No. Okay. Um, maybe uh, Leviticus 13.45. Um, so that says, As for the diseased person who has the infection, his clothes must be torn, the hair of his head must be unbound, and he must cover his mustache, and he must call out, Unclean, unclean. So did Jesus come to fulfill that? Well, Obviously, there are a, a lot of, I'll say a lot of facets to the law. You're probably going to hear me say that word quite a bit um, this morning. There are really a lot of facets to the law, and there are a lot of facets to this statement that Jesus gave us about fulfilling the law. Some of them are uh, pretty clear and direct, and others are not so clear or maybe not so in focus, but maybe require a bit of a broader view of the Old Testament law and prophets. So this morning, we're going to look at three different aspects in which Jesus fulfills the law. We're going to look at how he fulfills the moral law, how he fulfills the law of uncleanness, and how he fulfills the sacrificial law. So looking at how Jesus uh, fulfills the moral law, um, first thing that comes to my mind when I think about that, I think about how Jesus kept the law, and he kept it perfectly. Um, we see that in 1 Peter 2.22, which is a quotation of Isaiah 53, that Jesus committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. Um, you know, we read that passage pretty often, and I think kind of gloss over it and don't consider how incredible that is, that there was no deceit whatsoever in his mouth. Uh, it reminded me of this uh, comic that I saw once before. Um, so this uh, girl says that, uh, well, I totally failed. And someone asked her, did you try your hardest? She thinks for a moment and says, and thinks to herself, no. But she says, yes, yes I did. And then her friend says, well, then you did all you could. And she's thinking, no, I did not. But she's saying on the outside, yes, I did. Um, Oftentimes we give ourselves a little bit more credit, um, at least in the forefront of our minds, without thinking in the back of our minds about how we really did not do the best that we could. But Jesus did, and he, uh, and he kept it perfectly. He was the perfect lamb. Jesus also fulfilled the moral law in that he is the, the end of the law. So that, that comes from Romans chapter, chapter 10. Um, so the context of, of Romans 10, um, Paul has spent most of the book of Romans um, explaining this gospel, um, what he believes to be the gospel to the Romans, um, that this is the, the good news that, uh, that Jesus is the power of God to save, that we don't have to rely on hopelessly keeping works of the law, but that God has shown his righteousness to us through faith in Jesus. And Romans 10 is a part of a kind of an aside um, about the Jews and how Paul thinks about the Jews who have not yet accepted Jesus. And he says to them, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God on behalf of my fellow Israelites is for their salvation. For I can testify that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not in line with the truth. 
for ignoring the righteousness that comes from God and seeking instead to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, with the result that there is righteousness for everyone who believes. There's a couple different meanings uh, for the word end. I think the most common one would be like a, you know, a dead end or you know, the end of a rope or the termination. Um, that could be what he means here, um, that the law was just put to rest and put away here. Um, that seems to be at odds with what Jesus was saying in Matthew 5, though. Um, it could also mean that it means the conclusion or the goal or the, the culmination. Um, we also see that, see that in Hebrews 10, um, where the Hebrew writer says that the law was a shadow, but the substance is in Christ. Christ was one that was casting the shadow. So when we're looking for these patterns and we see them through the shadow of the law, um, we see the real thing in Christ himself. And you really see him uh, play that out um, just immediately after his statement in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, he goes on with all these statements about, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Um, for instance, just an example of one of those was in uh, chapter 5, verse 33. He says, again, you have heard it said, uh, heard that it was said to an older generation, do not break an oath, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, do not take oaths at all. Now, when he says, you've heard that it was said, you know who he's quoting, right? Like, he's quoting God. Like, God said that. And he is saying, you've heard what God said, but I say to you this. Um, I think we get kind of comfortable with those statements of Jesus and don't really appreciate how shocking, <laughs> offensive even, maybe, that was to that audience. You know, they say that he speaks with authority, unlike anyone has ever spoken before. Um, you know, just imagine if someone got up in the pulpit here and said, you know, you've heard it said that Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. But I say to you, I mean, if you weren't paying attention then, uh, you are now. <laughs> um, you know, your eyebrows would have been raised, and I'm sure that theirs were as well. But Jesus speaks as if, um, as if he wrote it, because um, he did. He knows the law, and he knows um, how to apply it. Now, sometimes when we think about the law, and we think about how Jesus fulfilled the law, he was the end to the law, um, we might ask the question, uh, is this law binding? Does it, how does it apply to us? Um, I think that's a, a good question to ask, um, but I don't think that that should be the, the first question that we ask when we're looking at, uh, at an Old Testament passage. And sometimes, at least in my case, it kind of betrays a, maybe a framework that isn't quite so right about, about the Old Testament and the New Testament, or really the scriptures as a whole. Uh, we might see the Old Testament as a, just a big list of rules, and that, rules was, that set of rules was scrapped and thrown away, and we have a new set of rules with some of the old ones recycled. Um, and so when we look at the Old Testament, we... It's as if we want someone to make for us a, a red-letter Old Testament and only um, you know, pay attention to the, the scriptures, uh, the commands that were repeated in the, in the New Testament. It's, it seems to me a little bit like um, you know, if Ariel were to ask me, you know, could you wipe off the table after supper? And I say, well, will you divorce me if I don't? Um, 
even without an answer to that question, you know right away there's something not quite right about that relationship, if I'm even asking that question. Um, so to me, that's a little bit like what just asking, is this binding? Do I have to do this or not? Um, can be like. Now, Galatians 3 does explain to us that uh, um, you know, we were under a guardian through the law. Um, well, I'll just read it. Um, it says, Now before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being kept as prisoners, until the coming faith would be revealed. Just uh, thus the law has become our guardian until Christ, so that we could be declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Now, the whole book of Galatians uh, is Paul correcting this misunderstanding that the Galatians have about their relationship to the law. Uh, it seems like they saw the law as a gateway that they had to pass through in order to get to Jesus. And that um, we don't have to go through that uh, to gain access to Jesus. Uh, but there are shadows and there's a lot of value in, uh, in looking at the law and um, and uh, understanding the lessons that we can, can learn from it. Um, we should be paying close attention to the law um, because it has shadows of Jesus in it. Uh, we know Jesus, we love Jesus, and uh, we have opportunities to see him in these, uh, in these stories. Um, there was a, uh, I can't remember who it was, but it was a maybe second or third century um, uh, church father who, uh, who made the argument that, um, you know, the the Torah and the prophets, uh, those are primarily Christian books, not Jewish books. Um, I think that would be considered a hot take uh, nowadays. Um, but his argument is that through Jesus, we were able to see the meaning of those, uh, of those scriptures um, in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise. So when we're looking at these scriptures, uh, maybe uh, we'll find something there that sh sheds some light on Jesus, or maybe Jesus will shed light on it. And maybe we will have some conviction from that understanding that leads us to do something. Um, but if we approach the law with it predecided that we just don't have to do anything in response to it, I think we've, I think we've missed something uh, that Jesus wants us to observe. Uh, so that is uh, Jesus fulfilling the moral law. Um, we're going to uh, sing a couple songs and then we'll, we'll continue after that. The first song we'll sing will come out of the Blue Book, song number 439. Psalm 19 is, is a psalm that, that speaks to the, the benefits and the, and the characteristics of, of God's law, God's, God's word. And so let's, let's sing that, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the
the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. More to be will sing before the throne of God above and that's song number 30 in your in your red binders it's up here on the screen as well Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Depart, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. To look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. 
Behold him there, the risen Lamb, the perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood, my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. I bow before the cross of Christ and marvel at thus love divine. God's perfect Son was sacrificed to make me righteous in God's eyes. This river's depths I cannot know. But I can glory in its flood. The Lord Most High has brought down low and poured on me his glorious love, and poured on me his glorious love. Next, we're going to look at how Jesus fulfills the laws of uncleanness. Um, so there are a, uh, <clears throat> uh, several different ways in which uh, an Israelite could become uh, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Um, certain skin diseases, uh, coming into contact with dead bodies or dead unclean animals, uh, childbirth, um, uh, even just all sorts of everyday events. It was very easy uh, to fall into a state of uncleanness. Uh, the sacrifices themselves um, also had to be clean in that they were without defect. Uh, so if you had a, a lamb that uh, it was just the most beautiful, fat lamb, um, um, but it had a bad eye, um, well, it was not eligible to be a sacrifice. Um, and the same thing for uh, priests as well. Uh, if they had some sort of a physical defect, uh, they were not eligible to, uh, to serve. Related to those, uh, um, to those laws, uh, there are also laws that um, discriminate between holy and uncommon. Um, now, the word discriminate nowadays is kind of a loaded term um, uh, in, in how it's been used in our recent past. Um, and, of course, we shouldn't be discriminating among ourselves. Uh, the Bible speaks to that as well. Um, but to discriminate just means to uh, make a distinction, tell a difference between uh, two separate things. Uh, so the Israelites had to discriminate between clean and unclean foods. Um, there's also laws about mixing things together, um, which uh, you know, seem like awfully random laws, um, but put them in their context and uh, see the story they tell throughout the Old Testament, you kind of start to get an idea of what God is trying to communicate here. 
Um, for instance, um, uh, their, their clothes could not be made of uh, linen and wool uh, mixed together. Uh, they couldn't mix crops in their field, have uh, both barley and wheat. Um, they could not interbreed or even yoke a donkey and an ox together, um, as well as uh, 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 the priests were required to marry from within uh, the nation of Israel. Um, there are all sorts of ways to, um, to uh, become unclean, and um, you, you couldn't uh, touch someone who was even unclean or even sit on a couch that an unperson, unclean person had sat on. You yourself would also become unclean. So this was just a, uh, just a fact of life uh, for, uh, for an, an Israelite. In fact, there was uh, one sacrifice described in Numbers 19 that required the priest to become unclean. Um, so it was not a sinful thing to, uh, to become unclean. Um, but what it did do was that it put a barrier uh, between, between um, the worshiper and God. Um, you could not approach God in worship in an unclean state or else uh, you would be condemned. Uh, so the Jews were very mindful of their state uh, of cleanness or uncleanness and were very aware of things that would make them unclean. And in some cases, the, the uncleanness is just uncleanable, uh, for instance, in the case of, uh, of leprosy. Now, uncleanness, uh, cleanness and uncleanness have a, an asymmetrical uh, relationship with each other. And uh, uh, we, we understand that in, uh, in things today as well. Uh, it is easy for unclean things to make clean things unclean. It is difficult for unclean things to become clean. Um, if I give you uh, two glasses of water, one with uh, uh, water from a swamp out behind my house, uh, or water with, uh, you know, from a, a clean, uh, clean filtered water, uh, if I put a drop of uh, dirty water in the clean water, you've got a glass of dirty water now. If you put a drop of clean water in the dirty water, still dirty water. Um, it's, it's an asymmetrical uh, relationship. <clears throat> And uh, there's um, all sorts of things uh, in life that go that way, uh, that seem to only go in one direction. Um, uh, scientists actually have measured uh, this. Uh, it's called entropy. Uh, you may have heard it tossed around. Um, but it's why certain things tend to move to a, um, move to a state of disorder or chaos. Um, it's why um, children's rooms are so easy to get dirty, but so difficult to keep clean, or adult rooms for that, that matter. Um, but we saw this reversed in uh, Matthew chapter 8. Um, so in Matthew chapter 8, um, <clears throat> this is just after the Sermon on the Mount. He's, uh, he's coming down from the mountain. Um, he says, after he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, that is Jesus, and a leper approached and bowed low before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and then Jesus said to him, See that you do not speak to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and bring the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now there are other healings in the, uh, in the New Testament where uh, Jesus healed someone from a distance. Could be from across the room, could be from the next town over. Um, so he is certainly capable of doing this healing without touching him. Um, but he did. What is Jesus trying to communicate to us? Um, first of all, uh, you know, there was a, 
we talk about social distancing uh, nowadays, uh, there was social distancing around lepers in the first century as well. Um, they were required to keep their distance in order to prevent infecting other people uh, physically or ceremonially. But Jesus, he did not uh, regard those rules. He saw that man and he approached him. And I just imagine like the, the flurry of thoughts that were going through the head of the disciples as their master is like, you know, he's, he's within six feet, five feet, four feet. You know, what is he doing? Is, you know, he might become unclean. Oh, he's reaching his hand out. He's going to touch him. And he touches him. <laughs> You're going to become unclean. But the exact opposite happens. Uh, the unclean was made clean. Um, it's as if Jesus' cleanness was so potent, so powerful, that uh, he infected the leper uh, with his, his cleanness. Now, I said earlier that uh, uncleanness was not the same thing as sin, which is true, um, but it was a metaphor for sin. Um, it was a metaphor for sin to uh, show to us um, that uh, sin is always present and is so easy to fall into. It is a barrier between us and God. Um, and honestly, it is an incurable problem uh, like the, the leper here. Uh, Jesus is just showing a, a faint glimpse of the fact that he is the solution to the problem of sin. <clears throat> we also um, see... Um, a similar, uh, similar light shown on those other laws about uh, things mixing together, or the, the holy and the common. Um, this is expounded on in, uh, in Acts chapter 10, uh, when uh, Paul, uh, Peter is sent to Cornelius. Um, he, Peter, um, good old Peter, he never learns this lesson the first time, um, but three times he sees this vision um, of unclean animals and being told to eat them. And uh, he just cannot bring himself to do this. This is just against every, everything that he knows as a Jew. But God is trying to communicate to him, there is no more unclean anymore. I have made them holy. Uh, don't call them common. Don't call common what I have made holy. Um, now, there is no more holy versus common. Uh, the, the mixing that was forbidden in the garments or the fields or the animals... Uh, that is, uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, God has spread his holiness not just from Israel, in Israel, but to all of the earth, um, if we're willing to accept him. So we'll sing a few more songs and have one more uh, session before uh, the Lord's Supper. Sing song number 34 in, in the red binder, the Lamb of God. Your only Son, no sin to hide, but you have sent Him from your side to walk upon this guilty sod and to become the Lamb of God. Christ the Lamb of God. 
Your gift of love they crucified. They laughed and scorned him as he died. The humble king they named a fraud and sacrificed the Lamb of God. Oh, Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the Holy Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in His precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. I was so lost, I should have died, but you have brought me to your side to be led by your staff and rod and to be called the Lamb of God. Sweet Lamb of God, I love the Holy Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in His precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. I was trying to find songs that combined what what Ryan just spoke about um, with the next section that's coming up. And so the, the concepts in what we just sang of, of being washed with the blood uh, of Christ, and, and that happens because Christ chose to become our lamb. He chose to become this sacrifice for us. And uh, this next song, Song 96 in the Red Binder, there's so much that, that Christ did when he fulfilled this law. So many things that, that he turned on, on their head as far as how they viewed uh, what God's covenant was and, and all that God really intended for it to, to be. And various things happened at the moment of Jesus' death, but one of the most notable things was that the, the, the veil of the, of the tabernacle was torn. In so many ways, God demonstrating, look, there's more to this. There's more going on uh, than you realize. And, and what Christ has has been willing to do for us, um, for them and, and for us, now uh, ripples through eternity. So let's, let's sing song number 96, Almighty God, Beyond the Veil. In ancient times the chosen race prepared Jehovah's dwelling place. The people feared the voice of him who dwelt between the cherubim, the cherubim, but once a year their priest would shameful cry was echoed back as crucified. The blood was 
shed that could atone the Lamb that was Jehovah's own, Jehovah's own. The darkest are his last exhale. Fulfilled God's plan and tore the veil. Now we, Jehovah's ransomed race, may enter his most holy place. By faith our prayers ascend to him who reigns among the seraphim. The seraphim we boldly bow and thus prevail. Dwells beyond the veil. Almighty God beyond the veil. I really appreciate uh, what Craig said and the, the songs that he led. Um, there are just so many like one-liner statements in the Gospels that just really would have hit for a, a, a first-century reader. That you know the veil was torn, um, or uh, when uh, when John the Baptist announces, "Behold, the Lamb of God!" Like that. I mean, we we can understand that, but I mean, they just had a really uh, special relationship with lambs. They knew what that meant. Uh, they knew what it was like to slaughter an innocent lamb, um, and uh, that would have been very, uh, very impactful to them. And I'm hoping that's what, uh, that, what you can uh, gain from, uh, from this morning. Um, so there, there's lots of facets that we can consider uh, about how Jesus fulfills the, the sacrificial law, the sacrificial system. Um, you could look at uh, the, uh, the Day of Atonement, how Jesus is uh, uh, both the lamb, the scapegoat that is sent out, uh, as well as the, uh, the lamb that is, or the goat that is sacrificed. Uh, he, he fulfills both of those. He's the, uh, he's the Passover lamb. Um, he, he's the fellowship offering. Uh, but um, this morning, I think we're uh, just going to look at uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 7, and um, I'm not going to have much to add to it. Um, I'm actually just going to read... Um, Hebrews 7 through 9. I think it'll take us about 10 minutes. Um, and just let the Hebrew writer uh, make his case to us. Uh, I, I didn't think I had much I could add to what he had to say. Um, I am going to try to uh, um, highlight some of the uh, contrasts that are made between the, uh, the uh, priesthood from Aaron as well and uh, Jesus' priesthood. Um, I might get out of sync, so I hope that doesn't distract you too much. Um, but let's just uh, listen to the text, and uh, once this reading is over, then we will um, observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Now this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him. To him also Abraham apportioned a tithe of everything. His name first means king of righteousness, and then king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, he has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but is like the Son of God, and he remains a priest for all time. But see how great he must be if Abraham the patriarch gave him a tithe of his, of his plunder. 
And those sons of Levi who receive the priestly office have authorization according to the law to collect a tithe from the people, that is, from their fellow countrymen, although they too are descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who does not share their ancestry, collected a tithe from Abraham and blessed the one who possessed the promise. Now, without dispute, the inferior is blessed by the superior. And in one case, tithes are received by mortal men, while in the other, by him who is affirmed to be alive. And it could be said that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid a tithe through Abraham, for he was still in his ancestor Abraham's loins when Melchizedek met him. So if perfection had in fact been possible through the Levitical priesthood, for on that basis the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise, said to be in the order of Melchizedek, and not in Aaron's order? For when the priesthood changes, a change in the law must come as well. Yet the one these things are spoken about belongs to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever officiated at the altar. For it's clear that our Lord is descended from Judah, yet Moses said nothing about priests in connection with that tribe. And this is even clearer if another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not by a legal regulation about physical descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For here is the testimony about him. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, the former command is set aside because it's weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And since this was done, uh, not done without a sworn affirmation, for others have become priests without a sworn affirmation, but Jesus did so with a sworn affirmation by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Accordingly, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the others who became priests were numerous because death prevented them from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, since he lives forever. So he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. For it is indeed fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need to do every day what those priests do, to offer sacrifices first for their own sins, and then for the sins of the people, since he did this in offering himself once for all. For the law appoints as high priests men subject to weakness, but the word of solemn affirmation that came after the, came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that the Lord, not man, set up. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so this one too had to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. The place where they serve is a sketch and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, just as Moses was warned by God as he was about to complete the tabernacle. For he says, See that you make everything according to the design I showed you on the mountain. But now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry, since the covenant that he mediates is also better and is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have looked for a second one. But showing its fault, God says to them, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their father on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I had no regard for them, says the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will establish with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will inscribe them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And there will be no need at all for each one to teach his countrymen, or each one to teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, since they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their evil deeds, and their sins I will remember no longer. When he speaks of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. Now what is growing obsolete and aging is about to disappear. Now the first covenant, in fact, had regulations for worship and its earthly sanctuary. For a tent was prepared, the outer one, which contained the lampstand, the table, and the presentation of the loaves. This is called the holy place. And after that second curtain, there was a tent called the Holy of Holies. It contained the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered entirely with gold. In this ark were the golden urn containing the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Now is not the time to speak of these things in detail. So with these things prepared like this, the priests entered continually into the outer tent to perform, um, as they performed their duties. But only the high priest enters once a year into the inner tent, and not without blood that he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Spirit is making clear that the way into the holy place had not, <clears throat> had not yet appeared as long as the old tabernacle was still standing. This was a symbol for the time then present when gifts and sacrifices were offered that could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They served only for matters of food and drink and various ritual washings. There are external regulations imposed until the new order came. But now Christ has come as the high priest of the good things to come. He passed through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And he entered once for all into the most holy place, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. And so he secured, uh, and so he himself secured eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on those who are defiled, consecrated them, and provided ritual purity, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to worship the living God. And so he is the mediator of a new covenant. And so all those, and so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance he has promised, since he died to set them free from the violations committed under the first covenant. For where there is a will, the death of the one who made it must be proven. For a will takes effect only at death, since it carries no force while the one who has made it is alive. So even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when Moses had spoken every command to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you to keep. And both the tabernacle and all the utensils of worship were li <clears throat> he likewise sprinkled with blood. Indeed, according to the law, almost everything was to be purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So it was necessary for the sketches of these things in heaven to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves required better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, the representation of the true sanctuary, but into heaven itself, and he appears now in God's presence for us. He did not enter to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the sanctuary year after year with blood that is not his own. 
but then he, would, he wouldn't have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the consummation of the ages to put away sin by his sacrifice. And just as people are appointed to die once and then to face judgment, so also after Christ was offered once to bear the sins of the many, to those who, eat, <clears throat> to those who eagerly await, await him, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation.